is a very, very, very special place to me. Not only is my good friends, but CF is actually the church that I came to know Jesus at. It's the church that set me out to plant and uh, set me out to pastor. So it is a, a very special place for me. I get, I get more nervous preaching here than anywhere else uh, because of those reasons. My name is Kusai Mahmoud. Those of you who don't know me, uh, Q, everyone just calls me Q for short, so you'll never remember my name, just Q, just a letter. Um, I've been married for 29 years. You can see the terror in my wife's eyes as she knows that I'm going to point her out. That's my wife, Denise, right there. Yeah, at least, yeah. <laughs> and then we have seven kids. Uh, I guess five of them are here. You guys should do something to acknowledge that. There you go. <laughs> they, uh, they have fond CF memories as well. They're all part of Rwanda um, here. And uh, it, it's so, that's another really just amazing thing is, you know, Daniel and Michael, of course, Sarah. Both suburbs. Um, so, yeah, so I remember them when they were much, much younger. Uh, we did a one with them, so it's just a lot of memories that come right rushing back as soon as we enter the door. The Rico family, just amazing, great family. Uh, Mr. Nazi and Rabbi, I mean, we go. It's just all right. Um, I'm trying not to get emotional. I'm going to start crying because it really this this church is a special, special place. And I remember years ago, um, I was talking to to Mr. Dave Rico about church and stuff. And, you have a favorite church kind of thing as you kind of move along with everything. And he said, your first church is just always the most special. And he's right. And, and CF is a very special place to me for all of those reasons and, and so many more. So um, we have lived in Chicago our entire lives, despite the many winters and summers that tell us we shouldn't live here. Uh, but for some reason, God has us here. And, and, and we will probably remain here as long as um, God sees fit for us to, to use us here. So I planted several churches. I pastored at a couple of churches. I'm currently pastoring at a church in Garfield Park. I do a lot of work with church planters and, and other churches helping with partnerships and stuff like that. So uh, just many like areas of ministry that I'm, I'm, I'm involved with. But all of that stuff is irrelevant because we are going to get to the actual reason that I'm here. That's so we can hear from God's word. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said this. There are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. Of these three, it may well be that we find the conversion of the purse the most difficult. Spurgeon said something similar. He said, with some Christians, the last part of their nature that ever gets sanctified is their pockets. So probably you know by now that this is a message about giving. For some reason, and just the way God has ordained things in my life, I am not exaggerating every time I'm asked to speak at a different church. It almost is always on giving. I've become the giving, the pastor that talks about money. And uh, 
it, it's odd at times, but it's, I guess it's just my lot in life. So I use the word giving. I don't use the word tithe. And I don't believe that you should either. Because the concept of the tithe is found in the Old Testament. And it basically means 10%. And so if you ascribe to an Old Testament tithing system, there's also another 23% that goes along with other festivals and feasts and holidays. So in actuality, if you are going to hold to the position of a tithe, that means you're roughly giving about 33% of your pre-tax income. So right now, it's like, yeah, And something significant happens when this person, Jesus, comes along. He changes things. That's what Jesus does. He changes things around. Instead of saying tithe, he tells us to give. He doesn't give us an amount or a percentage. But instead, he gives us a couple concepts or descriptive words to determine what giving is. I'm going to briefly mention the, the other two that we see in the New Testament, and then we're going to spend the bulk of our time in the third. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul tells the church in Corinth about the great generosity of the Macedonian churches. If we look at the Macedonian churches, Paul describes them in the first verses of chapter 8 as a struggling church. Paul says that they're in a great ordeal of affliction, that they experience deep poverty. And then in the very next breath, we learn that the Macedonians have continued to provide financial support for other churches. Verse 3 says that they gave according to their means and even beyond their means. That's the first component of giving is generosity. Giving beyond what is expected. You know, it's really not a big deal when a millionaire writes a check for $1,000. But when a guy who lives check to check gives a hundred, that's significant. The next component of giving that we see in Scripture, or in the New Testament specifically, is found in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. Most of us have heard of this verse, we're familiar with it. It basically says that God loves a cheerful giver. Consider the Macedonians again. In a great deal of affliction, they're in deep poverty. They pleaded and begged to be part of the giving process. On top of being generous, they were cheerful with giving. Now, I'm not familiar with everyone here, but I have a feeling that all of you guys participate in this type of giving. You are generous, and you do it cheerful. You are happy and excited to give. I heard there's an announcement. There's going to be an offering time, and everyone is all psyched and ready. There's going to be smiles and happiness that cannot be contained as everyone is so eager to give.
give to us cheerfully. You give to us in such abundance that we just simply can't even contain and hold on to all that you give us. I'm thankful for a grace that knows no limit. I'm thankful for a mercy that is beyond measure. I'm thankful for forgiveness that doesn't count or have an end. So we pray today, Father, that as your word speaks to us, that we are willing to let the Holy Spirit help us to understand, change us and transform us and make us more like Jesus. Help us, Father, to know the real cost of giving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the final component of giving is sacrificial. I'm going to read our passage for today. It's Mark 12, verse 41 through 44. It says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting, in, putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So in this passage, hopefully you see that this final component, this, this type of sacrificial giving is evident. I think that this passage most clearly exemplifies this concept of sacrificial giving. It's very clearly stated, very simply, simple to understand. Let me give you a little background on what's going on in this context to help you uh, be a little bit more aware of, of what was going on. So the temple, which is where everyone came to worship, is laid out in a series of courts. There's different sections for people uh, to enter and where, uh, based on certain things, how far you're allowed to go in, how far you're allowed to enter the court. So just imagine this, this building with a series of courtyards and then walls enclosing them. And these walls and courtyards would allow access for certain people based on several things. Ethnicity. You know that only certain ethnic people could go deeper and deeper into the court. Physical condition. If you had a disease or some type of affliction, you were only allowed to go so far. You know that your level of religio religiosity would also prevent you from going further and further. The more that you were recognized as a great religious person, the further you could go into the courts. And even gender prevented people from entering certain areas. One section, which was one of the first sections, was 
This place allowed access to everyone. Everyone was able to enter through the court of women. So regardless of <clears throat> Regardless of your standing in any of those categories, you had access to the court of women, even lepers. So in, in, in some way, the most um, um, rejected of those of that day were allowed to enter the court of women. In this courtyard, running alongside the walls were 13 giant trumpets. Now these trumpets were turned upside down. They were turned upside down so that the, the opening was the smaller end. And this was done for a very practical reason. So that no one could put their hand in there and take what was in there. So just imagine uh, uh, like a bugle or an upside down trumpet. Thirteen of them is what lined these walls where everyone was allowed access to. Each one of these trumpets were designated for a very specific type of gift. So when someone came in and they approached the trumpets, one of the Levites would stop them and ask them, what was this gift you're about to give? The Levites were entrusted with the stewardship of the temple, and so they would stop people and say, tell me about this gift. What are you doing? What's the nature of this gift? Why are you here? See, because one of the possibilities of these gifts was a financial gift for the priest. So this is what would happen. Someone would approach, a Levite would stop them and ask them, what's the nature of your gift? Why are you giving? What area are you giving to? Then they would take the gift and a priest would actually authenticate it, make sure it's real. And then the gift would be announced publicly so that there would be no mistake on who was giving it and what it was being given to. So if I were to kind of put this into today's terms, it would be like this. I would be standing there and you would approach MJ, let's use MJ for example. MJ would approach you. And I would say, What is this gift you have for the temple? And he would say, Levi Q, this is a personal offering to you of $10,000. I want you to have this gift of $10,000. Now is when you come up and give me the $10,000. <laughs> I, would, I would authenticate it, and then I would say out loud, this gift of $10,000 from MJ to Q and put it in the basket, in the, into the, that specific container so that everyone knew. There were several reasons why this was done. Oh, and by the way, he would scream out with an emphatic, yes, afterwards. We wanted to know he wasn't like coerced or, or forced into giving. And this was done to, to do a couple things. One, we wanted to make sure that the money was freely given. We wanted to make sure that the amount was known to everyone so that there wouldn't be any favoritism. And we wanted to know where this gift was to be designated. So I think 
here at Seattle, we should institute that. <laughs> and uh, maybe today we'll do it. Yes, this should be a refill up here and wait. And you guys can walk. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. So that was the process. That's how it worked. And it was done out in the open, free for anyone to see and hear. And in a sense, it kept everyone honest. Unfortunately, though, that wasn't always the case. See, there were some people, kind of like today, that are wholly dependent on their salaries coming from givers. I know you guys, you guys know that, right? I mean, just, yeah. right? There's not like a secret fund that pays all pastors. It comes from giving of a local church, right? You guys, know. you guys seem confused. I just want to make sure. You guys know it's not uh, some mystical thing that happens, and then it's like, oh, pastor, you pay. It's dependent on you guys giving. Okay. So there are, there are people that were wholly dependent on the giving of the worshipers to pay their salaries. Amongst that group of people were a group of people called the scribes. And these scribes were completely and totally dependent on the giving of the worshipers. The scribes were not generally wealthy. The scribes come from the Old Testament primarily, where they had this tremendous and incredible responsibility. Their responsibility was to make sure Scripture was preserved. They were the interpreters of Scripture as well. They were so familiar with the Old Testament that they could tell you how many letters were in each book of the Bible. Not only that, they could tell you how many spaces between words were in each book of the Bible. It was their job to preserve and interpret Scripture. Somewhere along the line, they became very arrogant and full of themselves. They signed themselves special roles. These roles stood out. They were unique. You could only be a scribe to wear these roles. Long, flowing robes. They had special prayer tasks at the end of them. It was recognizable. And these men had become so arrogant that they, when they walked through the streets of Jerusalem, they expected people to rise in their presence. They expected people to always have the seat of honor at banquets and festivals, open and waiting for them. As a matter of fact, in the temple, in this courtyard where everyone was accessible to, there were certain benches that only the scribes were able to sit on. They wanted to make sure that you knew how important they were. Not only did they know scripture back and forth, not only did they tell you every nuance, every letter, every space, but they were also the ones entrusted to tell the people what the text meant. And with that much authority and that much power, something changed in them. And over time, instead of becoming servants of the Lord, they became people that sought acceptance of man. All they were interested in was how can we impress people? How can we make ourselves feel so important 
that the people fear us, they're in awe of us, and they pay little attention to what God wanted them. These are the people that Jesus is constantly referring to when he talks about religious leaders. I mean, Matthew 23, an entire chapter, Jesus addresses how they are going to be dealt with, the fate of the scribes. look back a couple verses from our text today, we see that, that Jesus accuses the scribes of devouring the widow's houses. We see that a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus actually records an instance when a scribe goes, uh, I'm sorry, when a scribe is actually sent to Rome to face trial because of what he did. This scribe coerced and intimidated a wealthy widow to make this huge extravagant gift to the temple on, uh, for, for the temple's use. And instead what they did was they invested the money and stole it. This act was so heinous and so despicable that everyone from your common Jewish peasant all the way up to the emperor of Rome, Tiberius, was appalled and outraged by what was done. See, because we see throughout Scripture that widows are to be held in high esteem, that we're supposed to care for them and protect them, never to take advantage of them. Like widows were literally a, a kind of like, you know, hands off, like, hey, I can rob this person, but not never a widow. I can steal from this person, but widows are off and here you have the temple priest doing the robbing and stealing. And so it's events like this that Jesus tells us a few verses ago that those scribes are going to be punished severely. Now let, me, let me just pause right there because I think sometimes the words of Scripture don't really come alive to us. If I say you are going to be punished severely, you can probably laugh it off. I mean, what can I really do to you? When Jesus says you will be punished severely, we, we better stop and take a pause and make sure that we aren't in that category. You know Jesus, right? God, become man, creator of all, the one who can defeat evil in less than that. The one who holds all life together in his hands. And, and, and don't be so foolish to think that your life is a big thing. I'm talking about the universe and the universe and the stars and everything beyond that that we have no idea and no comprehension of. Jesus can wipe that out like that. So when Jesus says you will be severely punished, please stop. Take stock in your life and find out, am I in that category? Because I'm not talking about getting punished by cues. I'm talking about getting punished by Jesus. And unfortunately, we see this very behavior so common today among pastors. So common that people who, who teach a theology 
that says you are required to give, and when you give, you will be repaid over and over and over again. I, I don't think we also understand the severity and the danger of the prosperity gospel. It amazes me that the prosperity gospel even exists in this country. It really does. I'm not shocked when I hear about, you know, a, a, an emerging nation in Africa that has succumbed to this because these are all people who are at the lowest level of poverty, who want so desperately out of there that they will listen to someone who says, give all your money and you will be rewarded. I, I get that. It's still not right. But here, in the most affluent country in the world, that there are people that subscribe to this idea that God needs or wants your money, and in some ways this magician who's going to take what you gave him and multiply it into more. It's foolish and it's silly. And those who promote that will be punished severely. So now that we have an understanding of, of the context of the scene that we're in, let's get right into the text and see how this plays out. So in verse 41 it says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering. Many rich people put in large sums. So like I said, the scene in the background are set. And with that in mind, we see Jesus, who had just finished preaching a sermon known as the Fifth Discourse. And in that sermon, he warns the Pharisees about devouring the house of widows. He takes a few moments to himself. By the way, preaching is emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically exhausting. I, I know Pastor Ben is never going to admit to this, but give him a break right after preaching. You know what I mean? Say hi and stuff like that. Now, that's not the time to go, we need to talk about this and we need to talk about this. I don't know. I am wiped out right after I preach. And people are like, oh, you're so angry. I'm tired. You have no idea the weight of this. Seriously. The gravity. So just give him a few minutes to kind of settle down. You know, maybe he needs a cup of water or something. Even Jesus took a break. See what I'm saying? Jesus preached and goes, whoa! I need a break. I'm going to sit down with him. And he chooses a really interesting spot to go sit down. He heads over to what's called the beautiful gate of the temple. And it's the entrance to the inner courtyard. And he takes a seat someplace. Someplace where he's able to watch everything that's going on. Where he sits, says it's opposite the treasury. He's watching the people take their offerings to the offering boxes. Now let me just share something that's, that's important or interesting to note. In this word that we, we see here, watch, it actually is, is in the Greek in a tense called the imperfect. And what that means is continuous action up to the point of the action. So it would mean that Jesus sat down and watched in the past and continues watching. See, Jesus gets to use imperfect tenses when he talks about himself. He said, yeah, I sat down and I'm watching everyone's offering. And when I say I'm watching, it's not just present tense, it's I'm watching what happened in the past up until right now, this point. 
So think of what that means. It says that Jesus has been watching us bring our offerings in the past and continues to watch us. And I'm not saying that so that we're moved by fear or shame. But what I'm saying that, why I'm saying that is because Jesus is watching us. Regardless of how much you convince yourself that you're in hiding or you're in the dark or that no one else can see, Jesus can see. And he does see. And he will see. And he has seen. You are never alone. You are never alone. So Jesus takes this seat where he's able to continue watching. And he's looking at the people coming and putting their money into the offering boxes. And one of the things he notices is that many of the rich people are putting in large sums. And that's awesome. And that's what should happen. The rich should give large amounts. There's not an argument here to be made. No one should be shocked that a person that has a lot gives a lot. I mean, this isn't really any fashion of giving. Any of us who have a wealthy relative, if we're really honest, we have a wealthy relative, we have come to expect nice gifts from them. Birthday rolls around, Oh, I'm being told out. I have a wealthy relative. When my birthday comes around, I'm expecting a nice gift. He has a lot of money. Why shouldn't I expect something nice? And if I'm really being honest, when I don't get something nice, I'm like, seriously, this dude has so much money. You got to be kidding me. So whether rich give and give in large amounts, none of us should be shocked. It always cracks me up when I see like on the news. So-and-so billionaire pledges $100 million. And everyone's like, wow, what a great man. Like, he gave 100 million. He's got 900 left. But he gave 10%. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, and he also pulls it out over time. He doesn't write a $100 million check. Because he's making sure that his investments are paying off so that that 100 million is just 100 million. So, when it doesn't happen, and if we're really able to be honest, we're angry, we're upset that I have this relative that has so much that doesn't really give. So, shocking, Jesus is watching the wealthy put in large sums. And then what happens? A poor widow comes and puts in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. Jesus, in the midst of all this wealth, notices a poor widow. Now, aside from being God incarnate, how would Jesus know that this was a poor widow? Probably from the same assumption that we made, how she was dressed, her appearance, did she look clean and healthy? Same way that we make these determinations, right? And if we look at the economy of the day, the day and consider what we can learn from that, we see that something really interesting happens here. This is, again, some of the things that we lose in translation. In the original language, Mark writes that she dropped in two lepta. And it's simply, if we were just to translate it, it means a quarter. Except they didn't use the dollar system. 
it wasn't a quarter of a dollar that she dropped, but it was a quarter of an Assyrius. An Assyrius was worth one sixteenth of a denarius. I know you bad people with money for my blood. That's what the crime finally is. And we, we see in other places in scripture that a denarius was the equivalent of one day's worth of wages. So thankfully someone has done the work and, and made all the conversions so that it's easier for us to understand. A denarius in today's dollar is worth somewhere between 16 and 18 cents. And a series was a sixteenth of that, which is what makes it a penny. But it's a quarter of a penny. So why is it important for us to know this? Why did I just throw all this out at you? Because I want to make sure that you understand the actual value of these copper coins. It's in stark contrast to the large amounts that were being given. So this poor widow comes along and drops in two small copper coins. These two coins that combine together equal a penny. Verse 43, it says, And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Jesus watched this woman. He is so moved by her actions, he actually calls his disciples. You guys know that moment when you see something, you're with a group of friends, and you're just like, oh, and you guys come over here, you gotta see this. Alright? Jesus is so blown away by what happens that he's like, I can't be the only one who witnessed this. I need you 12, come here. I need you guys over here to see this. You know that in the book of Mark, in its entirety, Jesus calls his disciples over to see something only four times. Think of how special this moment must have been. That Jesus is like, guys, you need to get over here and witness what's happening. This wasn't a random event without significance. And when Jesus calls them over, he says this word. He says, truly, when you are reading your Bible and you see that word truly or verily, you probably need to stop, go back, reread what you just read, and pay very close attention. It is Jesus' way of saying, listen up, pay attention. It is the Old Testament version of thus saith the Lord. So when you see truly or verily, that's like back in the Old Testament they used to be like, thus saith the Lord, and everyone's like, whoa. Same concept here in the New Testament. Jesus says truly, pay extra attention. Jesus said the widow gave more than all those who contributed to the offering box. Think of how dumbfounded the disciples must have felt. We just saw that guy drop in a gold bar. We just saw MJ go off and pledge $10,000 a cube. She just dropped in two coins and equal a penny. Remember I talked about this earlier, I said, when they first entered that courtyard, a Levite would meet them, find out what the offering was or how much it was, and then direct them to the correct box. Well, there was one box that never needed anyone to be directed to, 
It was called the Free Will Box Offering. It was named that way because those in charge of the temple had zero expectations for it. I mean, it was literally like they had this box off at the side and they're like, we're not even going to pay attention to that. It's not going to make it then. It's not going to pay the rent. It's not going to pay anyone's salary. There's no food to buy. Just whatever goes on. We're just not going to pay attention too much to it. See, like I said, we talked about the challenges that we face, but we determined to give. How we give, what we give to, right? Many churches do this. The church I'm a part of does it. I'm not saying you walk right, but we allow, we let the congregation decide how do you want this money to be used. Which is, I mean, that's the temple system. So, check mark this box if you want it to be a special offering. offering. Check mark this box for the building fund. Check mark this box for missions. Check mark this and so on, so on, so on. One of the sad things about that, and it's just like the temple system, it allows us to determine the value and worth of what we're going to give to and whether or not it's worthy to be given to. You know, when we talk about a church's needs, and if we're really honest about this, you guys have probably been a part of a church that has done this before. We have a special project going on. The building needs to be repaired. We need a new roof. I think that happened here a couple years ago, right? With some roof damage and stuff. We need a roof. Or we are growing, we are bursting at the seams. We're buying three properties next to us, tearing them down, and adding on the building. And man, people get excited about that. If you, it's historically proven in churches that if you have a building fund, you will meet the expectation of a building fund two to five years earlier than the date that the church is set for it. We love giving the building funds. I have never, in my 18, 17 years of ministry, have ever heard of a church meeting its missions budget two to five years ahead of time. Never. I've never seen a church go, you guys are so generous when it comes to us giving admissions. We have so much money, we're taking some of that money and putting it in the building fund. Never. We get excited about building funds. And we don't get excited about missions. Think about where our heart's at. Because I know for a fact each and every one of us was judging and condemning all those rich people for giving in the specific bins in the temple, and we're all guilty of doing the exact same thing. Each one of us was like, how dare that wealthy man put that gold bar in this specific one? How dare that wealthy man determine how the temple was going to use this money? We do the exact same thing. What if we said, we have godly men in charge of this church, and we're going to allow them to determine how the money gets spent? See, money is very personal to us. Because even when we give it, we still think it's ours. Right? No one's ever been, I know this doesn't happen here, so, but no one's ever been at a church meeting where there's arguing over money that you gave. 
because we still are holding on to it. Hey, I wrote that check. The only reason that that, that that church, that ministry has that money is because I wrote it. It wasn't yours the moment you wrote it. And I got news for you, it wasn't yours before you wrote that check. God makes it very clear that we are called to be stewards, managers of what he has given us. We're never owners. We are never owners. So there's this free will offering box that the widow gives to. And he, by the way, she is demonstrating, I trust, who leads and runs this temple and how they're going to use that. And I'm going to tell you that that box is probably empty or next to empty. There wasn't a priest there who stood and examined what was put in there. And also considering the distance that Jesus runs from the box, he knew what she gave. I went to Chicago Public School. We had funds like you wouldn't believe. Um, <laughs> so there was this, 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 basically the experiment was this. You take a jar, and then you can tell the different types of materials that coins were made as you dropped it into a jar. It made a different sound. I mean, if any of you have change, don't try this at home. Um, it's really not that earth-shattering or anything. Like a quarter sounds different than a penny. You guys know that, right? It's different material, different weights. What schools did you guys go to? And so Jesus hears these thin coins being dropped in the container, and by hearing it goes, he's dropping his blood them. That's how empty that box was that he was able to identify it based on what you put in, hearing the sound. Jesus heard those coins, those thin ones being dropped, identifies it, and makes that determination that she gave more than anyone else. And then in verse 44 it says, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus brings us to this very climactic end. He explains the importance of why he called the twelve together to see this event, to see what the widow did. In that one sentence, he contrasts the motives and the intentions of the rich and those of the widow. He points out, look what the rich gave, but they gave out of abundance. They gave based on the extra that they had. Was it giving? Absolutely. Was it generous? Was it not? 
not with a cheerful heart? Was it sacrificial? You see, I think we can all understand the concepts of, of generosity when you give and you give in abundance. Right? When you're, you know, you, you know that friend that always picks up the tab when you go to dinner. When you're short on money, they always have something for you, you before you even ask sometimes. They're giving, they're generous. They want to give of themselves. They want to give of their time, their money, their resources. And we even know that cheerful giver, the person that never gripes about it. You need it, I got it, it's yours. And I'm happy to do it. As a matter of fact, I'm excited to do it. There's something that's great about doing that. But the question has to be asked, was it sacrificial? Because that's how Christ calls us to give. He says, be a generous giver, be a cheerful giver, be a sacrificial giver. And here's the thing. For something to be a sacrifice, it has to hurt. It has to cost you something. And when we ask those questions about the wealthy givers, the answer is no. We know that that's not the case. For one, it doesn't meet the definition of generosity that Paul attributed to the Macedonians. It wasn't a free will offering that was made to that empty basket that didn't come with the accolades and recognition of who gave what and how much. And it wasn't sacrificial because it didn't cost them. It didn't hurt. But the widow, she put an effort in. She was showing generosity, cheerfulness, and her sacrificial nature all in one moment. She showed that she completely and totally relies on God. That she completely and totally trusts in his word and his promises. She had total faith that God cared for her and would always provide for her and will continue to do so. Now let me stress this. Jesus, the Bible, nor I am telling anyone to give everything they have. You won't find that in Scripture, a command to give everything. I'm not telling you to give everything. But the question might be posed to you is would you be willing to? Would you be willing to give it all? Or is your faith and your trust and your word all wrapped up in what you have? Instead of who you belong. And it goes back to the lie that we have convinced ourselves to believe that we actually own anything. When we own nothing. Even our own lives are our own. My life is not my own. The money I have in the bank is not my own. My children are not mine. Even my spouse, even my wife, 29 years, she's not mine. She belongs to Christ. And Christ has said, steward this gift. 
care for it, manage it, love it. Because Jesus is telling us a very important thing. He's saying, it's not the amount. I own it all. You can't outgive me. The amount isn't important. That's not even the issue. The issue is your attitude. The issue is your motivation. The issue is the purpose of what it is you think you own. See, because what matters is what's in your heart. And what is in your heart is being revealed. And we need to have our true desires revealed to us. We need to see where there's sin in our lives. And then repent of that. And see what God desires from us. My hope is that in this message, that not a single person becomes a better giver. That's really my hope. I don't want any of you to walk away from this and go, I'm going to be a better giver. See, because that just leads us to us feeling better. That leads to us appeasing our own sinful nature. I'm not telling you this so that the offering here increases. Because all that's going to lead to is pride. I made that happen when I gave that much. What I'm hoping is that in this message you see that the gospel has been revealed and maybe you didn't even see it. I'm hoping that the gospel has been shown to us in a different way. God was the punishment that you and I were intended for. 
for our sins, Christ was punished. God's wrath was placed on him. And Jesus didn't turn away from that. Instead, he freely, generously, cheerfully, sacrificially took that wrath on himself. He sacrificed himself so we wouldn't have to. He sacrificed himself so that we could have fellowship with the Father. He sacrificed himself so that as we are transformed more in his image, we can then demonstrate our understanding and live as people who are generous, cheerful, and sacrificial. This sermon wasn't about money. I hope you realize it. It's about how Jesus uses something that we all are accustomed to and used to and have knowledge of to demonstrate who he is and what he's done for us. I mean, you think money matters in, 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 in the scheme of life? Sure, I can drive a nicer car and have a better house. It does nothing for me on judgment day. It does nothing for me if I haven't accepted Christ and put my faith in him. I think about how that generosity that God offers, that, that cheerfulness that he gives to us, that, that sacrifice that the Trinity endured for us gets demonstrated to us over and over and over again. And unfortunately, we miss it so many times. But one of the places we get to experience it is, is right here at the table. We get to see all of those elements come together as we participate in the Lord's Supper. 